0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at the story of Stephen. He is this lengthy defense as he is under trial uh, with the High Council. We're going to be reading a, a decent chunk of uh, scripture here. I cut some some of it out, but... I think uh, as we make our way through it, we'll be able to see sort of the uh, line of reasoning that he gives as he defends himself. Let's begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some of the men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene. Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. Now, a little bit of a recap. Remember, this guy Stephen was actually among those chosen in Acts chapter 6 to administrate this feeding program among the poor. And we're told that he is a man that was full of God's grace. And this just really describes that he possessed a godly character and that he was attuned spiritually I don't know if you've ever been around people like that. They have a spiritual mindset, and they seem to have an impact wherever they go. In addition to that, we're told that Stephen possessed incredible spiritual power, not only in his ability to speak for God, but also he was performing miraculous signs and wonders just like the apostles, as Luke includes there in verse 8. But we're told that in verse 10, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. I think this is interesting because when you read about Stephen in the first part of Acts chapter 6, it almost seems like this guy serves and that's all he does. He's not really a Bible teacher or that he doesn't function in any other way. But we don't sort of see that, that dichotomy that you often see today with these biblical figures, many of them were sharing the message of Christ while they were serving the poor. You know, if you watch American churches today, many churches center their ministry or their service around serving the poor. And that's a good thing. We should should love the poor. We should take care of the needs of the poor. But they often do that instead of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And so really, they're only meeting the short-term needs of these people, but Really, if we are trying to serve people holistically, we're not only taking care of their basic and physical needs, we're also taking care of their spiritual needs by sharing the one thing that we know will preserve their lives. That is the message of Christ. And so Stephen was a guy who took care of the needs of the poor while sharing the message of Christ. So they, they persuaded some of these men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. And of course, this roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council, or in other translations, the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of Israel at the time. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now these customs he refers to, he's talking about rituals and Old Testament laws that they had practiced for generations, millennia. And essentially they were accusing him of changing the whole system, changing the way that everything had been for thousands of years. Now, if we look at verse 13, I think that this verse, this phrase, the accusation that these guys are putting forward acts as a key that sort of unlocks Stephen's defense. As we'll see in chapter 7, Stephen's defense can be really confusing to understand. But if you keep in mind the accusation they're hurling against him, that Stephen was speaking against the temple of God. And the law of Moses, you'll be able to understand what what he was uh, saying in his defense. Now, Stephen wasn't saying anything that was new. Jesus talked about how one day the temple of God would become irrelevant because God's presence would actually embody the people of God, that the temple merely represented God's presence on earth. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 2, uh, verse 19 through 21. He says to these religious leaders, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the Jewish leaders replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But of course, he was talking about the temple of his body. Now, the temple represented God's presence on earth. That's why people flocked to the temple in order to worship God. But when Jesus came, he became the literal embodiment of God's presence on earth. And when he died, rose from the dead, and ascended back into heaven, we, because we have the Holy Spirit as followers of Christ, now become God's presence on earth, his holy temple. As Peter says in First, first Peter chapter 2. The other thing that they were accusing him of was that he was speaking against the law of Moses. And this becomes a real big point of tension between the early church and many of the Jewish people that were encountering this teaching for the very first time. They thought that the Christians were essentially negating everything that Moses had said in the Old Testament. But Christians were claiming that they weren't there to eradicate the Old Testament, but they simply brought to light the fact that Jesus was the true fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't, you think, that, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but in, to fulfill them. So Jesus became the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. In other words... He fulfilled the requirements of the law that we are unable to do. Thus, freeing us from the bondage, the yoke of the law. If you ever read the Old Testament and read through the, I don't know, 600 something laws, you get this sort of sinking feeling that I'm not sure I can do all of this. And I'm sort of kidding myself if I, if I think I can. And so Jesus was able to do that as a perfect man, bear this, this yoke, this burden of the law, and to die for us so that we don't have to do it ourselves. So these really become the two accusations that Stephen is, is trying to dismiss as he gives his defense later on. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll recall that Moses as he stepped down from Mount Sinai bearing the Old Testament law that God gave him. His face was was shining as bright as the sun. And I wonder if God allowed this to happen, that he caused this to happen in order to show the people that essentially this is this is his man, Stephen was speaking for them, and uh, that they should listen to him. Now, in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, we're told the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And so the remainder of our passage we're going to be looking at is Stephen's defense. So the stage is set for Stephen to argue against these accusations, but there are a number of things that we need to take into consideration. I think, first of all, many biblical commentators, scholars of the New Testament, are critical of Stephen's defense. I don't know if you've ever read this, this section of the Bible. It's kind of confusing. For example, you have guys like Howard Marshall, a New Testament scholar, says, "In form, it's a lengthy recital of Old Testament history discussing in detail what appears to be insignificant points and culminating in a bitter attack on the speaker's hearers. In other words, Stephen wasn't really good at arguing. He was just launching these ad hominem personal attacks against his hearers. And he was bringing up all of these irrelevant details from the Old Testament. What is the speaker trying to do? The answer, it's not clear what the theological point of the details is. Martin DeBellius, another New Testament scholar, says the major part of the speech shows no purpose whatever. The most striking feature of this speech is the irrelevance of its main section. Well, I just have to say, I couldn't disagree more with these guys. I'm not saying I'm smarter than them, but I definitely think that if you understand the accusations that the high council was throwing at Stephen... I think everything starts to fall into place, starts to make sense. I think, really, Stephen's speech or his defense centers on three things, three themes that show up throughout. First of all, temples cannot contain God. It's one of the things that he argues over and over again, citing Old Testament examples. You know, um, we see that sacred space really is a fixture of religious thinking. You know, you go to a place and uh, there's usually a shrine or a temple or a building that people have erected over these important spots, whether that be some famous religious figure who died in that very place or was buried, or um, maybe there's some sort of significance Uh, to that religion, and so they will build this holy place. You have these places throughout the world. And Stephen wants to argue that, you know, things like temples and sacred places, they can't contain God. You know, this fascination with sacred space is universal. You see this throughout world religion. For example, Anthropologist Marcia Eliade says the enclosure, wall, or circle of stones surrounding a sacred place, these are among the most ancient of known forms of man-made sanctuary. And so typically, people will memorialize an area by setting some stones there in the more primitive examples. In other cases, they'll actually build these elaborate, you know, temples or cathedrals, I remember going to Israel a number of years ago, and there were a number of proposed areas where Jesus was buried and crucified, and over most of those sites were these enormous cathedrals that people had built, medieval cathedrals soaring into the sky. I remember going to the spot where allegedly Jesus had died, the area of Golgotha, and you had to walk through this elaborate maze, this labyrinth, in order to get to the area where, allegedly, Jesus was crucified. And then you would have to go in there, and uh, above the, the so-called spot where he had been crucified, there was a sanctuary, an altar. And you'd have to crouch down and put your hand on there to touch the stone where maybe Jesus had died. And so, you know, that's how, in world religions, people memorialize their, um, their religious leader. Now, there's some, some reasoning, I think, behind this. I think, first of all, in religious thinking, there is a clear distinction or delineation between the sacred and the profane, that is, the unholy. And in order to enter the holy area, the sacred, you often, as a practitioner, have to undergo a number of rituals to make sure that it's safe to approach the deity, You know, we see that Jesus critiques this kind of thinking, really, which amounts to superstition, that God is localized to a certain area. He says, for example, to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She was trying to start a theological argument over which mountain was actually the holy one, Mount Sinai or Mount Gerizim. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, he is going to inaugurate or bring about a new system, a new way of relating to God that isn't different from the old way in the sense that it contradicts it, but it, it's really a fulfillment of these sim- symbols that God has put in the Old Testament, such as the temple, that this is God's presence on earth. But eventually, that would become the body of believers. You know, it raises this question, why does this, why does this matter? You know, why, why does it seem like we're railing on this idea of, of sacred space? I think, first of all, sacred space helps us keep God contained in a box. There's something sort of attractive and appealing about that to keep God compartmentalized. When you worship God, that's something that you do once a week on Sunday morning at a place, the church building, right? But the rest of the week, you're not really thinking about God. You're more preoccupied with everything else. And so sacred space I think helps us sort of contain God to a certain part of our lives and insulates him from from interfering in these other areas I wanted to show this uh, clip that I think um, illustrates this pretty well it's from the Simpsons from a a number of years ago but I think um, kind of uh, shows my point in a humorous way Um, if the Lord is all powerful why does he care whether we worship him or not? Ack <laughs> just saying. Well, Eck, it's because God is powerful, but also insecure, like Barbra Streisand before James Brolin. Why are you building chapel? Because you're all terrible sinners. Since when? Since I got here. Now either grab a stone or go to hell. <gasps> <gasps> about God but I have to say we built a pretty nice cage for him. These are from the children. Thanks to you all of us finally have a place to pray and I'm in a gambling program for real this time. How many times must we go to church to avoid hell? Every Sunday for the rest of our lives. (laughs) No really. Uh, definitely some, um, uh, pretty strong critique there. You know, even though it's, it seems a little overstated or whatever, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth to it though. I mean, what he's saying there is, you know, it's easy to sort of contain God in this place, uh, where we can go whenever we feel like it's convenient and then we can leave and li- live the rest of our lives without having him interfere this idea of sacred space, it localizes God, which I think minimizes the possibility of him interfering with our lives. We like that. We like the fact that God doesn't have to influence our day-to-day living, but that we can sort of have him as a feature of our lives Sunday morning um, without him, you know, this, this, uh, his influence bleeding over into other areas. Also, it puts us into a position of control. I think that's one of the real appealing things about sacred space because I get to choose when I get to go and worship God. It's not something that I have to do all the time. And yet, the God of the Bible, according to scripture, uh, he is the creator of the universe, he's the owner of the universe, and by extension, He owns us. We owe our lives, our very existence to him, which I know is sort of an offensive thing to hear. And yet, in an effort to try to block him, we do things like this in order to put him in a position where we are controlling him. You know, this also applies to other areas such as holy days, ritualism, and reciting memorized prayers. It's not just sacred space. When you think about these different areas of ritualism, it really makes our interactions with God impersonal and mechanistic. It's almost like you have created this cosmic pop machine where you put in your good works or your ritual and out comes a a certain product. And if you don't get what you wanted, you get angry about it. And so in a lot of ways relating to God through these rituals and through these forms, as anthropologists uh, describe it, really turns our relationship with God into something other than the kind of relationship he wants to have with us, which is a father and a child relationship. Also, it must seem really weird to God. Think about, you know, imagine if... um, your friend, whenever you go to hang out with him, shows up with uh, those really short running shorts, you know, the ones with the slits on the side that go all the way up. And, uh, you know, as he's approaching you, he does five forward lunges, deep lunges. <laughs> You'd be like, why are you doing that, man? And you're just like, I don't know. I just feel like that's You know, that's something that you wanted or whatever, you're like, dude, can you just can you not do that when we have lunch at Wendy's, you know, like or you know, imagine if you know every time you you spend some time with your friend, um, he kept repeating the same thing over and over again. I love you, you're so wonderful. I love you, you're so wonderful. I love you, you're so wonderful. I love you. You're so wonderful. I mean, that would be so awkward. You're like, can you talk to me like a normal person? You know, that must be how God feels, being on the receiving end of this. Why why do they feel like they need to jump through all of these hoops in order to relate to me? Why can't they talk to me in a personal way, like like I prescribe? Secondly, you know, when we look at Stephen's speech, He points out that Moses predicted Jesus' coming, that all of this was foretold. And that's the reason why Jesus was able to fulfill the Old Testament law. And finally, God's people have a history of rejecting his spokespeople. You know, every time God sends a prophet, somebody who speaks for him, the people actually turn against him. And what Stephen's trying to get them to do is to connect the dots, to see that history is actually repeating itself as they persecute him for speaking about Christ. So with that, why don't we uh, jump into our passage in verse two and three, we're told this was Stephen's reply, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor, Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Now, it's important that he points out that God called him out of his land and said, I want you to leave your land and your relatives and go. And I think it's important that he's highlighting this because remember, the nation of Israel at this time viewed the area, the land of Israel, and especially Jerusalem as incredibly holy land. And yet, Stephen points to the fact that Abraham a man who they revered as a father of faith actually came from an area that was far away from Israel, you know, thousands of miles away. He says, so Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. God said, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. So I think essentially what Stephen's trying to paint here is the fact that Abraham never lived in the promised land that they cherished so much. He's pointing to the fact that this holy land that you're holding on to, that you're fighting over, that Abraham never even, you know, he never lived in that land. He never owned any of it. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at the time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, He circumcised him on the eighth day and and the practice was continued when Isaac, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. I guess this bears some explanation. The covenant of circumcision, God made a covenant with Abraham. This is really just an agreement or a pledge. It's like a contract between two parties. And typically, whenever God made a covenant or a contract with people, there was a sign that he would give them. In this case, it was circumcision. But we see that, for example, in Noah's case, he said, every time you see a rainbow, you'll know that we have our covenant. In Abraham's case, it was circumcision, which I'm sure that, you know, when Abraham first heard this, he's like, are you kidding me? Could we have like a lunar eclipse? maybe like a secret handshake or something like that. I mean, circumcision. But, you know, I think what God was trying to do, he was trying to communicate to Abraham and his and the people that would follow that there is a sacred pack that we have and that even in your private moments, when you look down, you realize this is a serious agreement. <laughs> Secondly, he says that there are the 12 patriarchs. So Abraham begot Jacob, or, uh, Isaac, and then Isaac begat Jacob. And then Jacob then became the father of the 12 patriarchs. These are, these are 12 sons who then later became sort of the tribe leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom, so the Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. I think it's significant that in verse 9, he points to the fact that the patriarchs, their fathers, were jealous of their brother Joseph. That that was the driving force behind them capturing him, and selling him to these foreigners who eventually brought him into Egypt as a slave. You know, during Jesus's life, one of the driving forces behind the Pharisees persecuting Jesus was their jealousy that the crowds were following him. And I think he was pointing to the fact that in the same way that your fathers rejected the man God chose to save you, you rejected the man whom God chose to save the entire world, Jesus Christ. And we're told in verse 9 and 10, you see this repeated, God was with him, God gave him favor, God had unusual wisdom. Notice where he was at this time. He was in Egypt, not in the land of Israel. The so-called sacred place where only God could work. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan, and there was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. So this is where they have their first meeting with Joseph, the the 11 patriarchs, when they go to Egypt to buy some food. And, of course, they end up reconciling. Eventually, the entire family migrates into Egypt and Joseph gives them one of the greatest plots of land because at this time he had been raised to the, the, the really the highest position in Egypt. So the second time they went, we could skip down here. Uh, so Jacob went to Egypt and he died there as our ancestors did. Their bodies were taken to Shechem And buried in the tomb, Abraham had bought for a certain price for Hamor's sons in Shechem. Now, I think, you know, you sort of wonder, like, what's this story really trying to convey? I think he's pointing out that God was working through Joseph, who was rejected by his brothers, who was an Egyptian slave living outside of Israel. And we see this theme repeated in the other examples that he cites. In verse 17, we're told, as the time drew near, when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came in to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At the time Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. Then they had to abandon him. And Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. This is the story where, remember, Moses' parents put him in this wicker basket with pitch and floated him down toward where uh, Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. And that's where she found him. We're told Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was powerful both in speech and action. And one day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. Again, he's pointing to what, exactly what happened with Jesus. That the person whom they revered, Moses the one who they trace their spiritual lineage back to, that their forefathers did the same thing to Moses that they did to Jesus, God's appointed one, God's chosen one. They didn't recognize that God had sent him, but instead rejected him. The next day he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. He said, men, aren't you brothers? Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled into the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. And there his two sons were born. Forty years later in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and didn't even dare to look. Then the Lord said, take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I've heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I'm sending you back to Egypt. He tells him, he says, take off your sandals. Take off your crocs. You're, you're standing on holy ground here. The location of this area, it remains unknown to us. And I think that's important because, again, when you think about religious thinking, a lot of times an event like this will signal that we need to build a structure or memorialize this event by, by building something over this. And yet, we don't know where this is. And again, I think Stephen is is thundering that, you know, this, this idea of holy ground, in this case at least, it didn't matter once God's presence disappeared. So we're told that God sent back the same man as people had previously rejected when they demanded who made you ruler over us. Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be the ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. He's referring to the 10 plagues of of Egypt there. So Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise you up, a prophet like me, from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him on Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. This passage that he is referencing is Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, which most commentators, both Christian and Jewish, who don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, look at this passage as a messianic prophecy, speaking about the one who would come. So essentially, Stephen was saying, your own man, Moses, who you claim to represent, he spoke about Jesus, whom you rejected. He says, our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. You know, this was the mobile worship tent. Every time they would travel to a new place, they'd have to build this thing back up, and then God's presence would fill it. And he, again, It's interesting when you look at that, that it wasn't a permanent structure. It was wherever God had led them, that that's where his presence would dwell. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle, he says, against the nations that God drove them out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building this permanent temple for God. But it was Solomon who actually built it. It's interesting, when you look at the interaction between David and God over this temple, he says, I want to build you an incredible place because I'm living in this beautiful palace made of cedar, and it's got all of these incredible inlays in it, but you're like in a tent. You're camping outside my backyard. I could definitely build you something way better than my own place. I've got the resources for it, and God's like, why do I need you to build me a house? Who are you to build me a structure? Well, he says, however, the most high doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asks the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? He's citing the Old Testament. The very Old Testament that they're saying calls for God to be contained in a localized area. God himself says, you couldn't build me anything, uh, anything big enough to hold me. I recall as a young uh, kid, probably around 9 or 10, there was this moment where I lost my faith in God. It was um, when I was in grade school, and I remember I was getting in trouble a lot during that time, And one semester, I did something that was just, you know, really bad. And um, my teacher actually suspended me from class for the rest of the year because she's just like, I've had it with you. You're just terrible. So eventually, she was like, you need to basically do all of your homework and show up to the principal's office every single day for the rest of the year. And so my principal was usually out of the office, which afforded me the luxury to be able to wander through the halls. And so I would just, you know, unplug water fountains, grab people's like backpacks and eat their lunch and stuff in the hallway. (laughs) It was a parochial school, it was a Catholic school, so it had an adjoined chapel area where I would just go in there and just sort of wander and sit sometimes for hours Sometimes I grab the smelling salts and kind of jolt myself. But uh, I remember one time as I was sitting there, a thought occurred to me. I, I, I was like, you know, if God is all present, then why do we have to come here to be able to speak to him? Why does it matter that I'm here? You know, why, why, is this any different than me going let's say, to my bedroom and being able to talk to God. And I remember at that point, I, I just really lost my faith. I thought to myself, all of this traditional, traditionalism, all this ritual, it's masking what God really wants to communicate. So I, I, I felt very skeptical about the Bible. And I remember after becoming a Christian and coming out to a Bible study like this, hearing a passage like this taught, and thinking to myself, That's incredible. That's exactly what I needed to hear. And at that moment, I remember my faith taking a quantum leap forward. And so, you know, for some of us, we we might be skeptical about the Bible. We might be skeptical about Christianity because we feel like all of these human traditions and forms have been piled on top of it. And we're sort of left to wonder, is there anything from God left in this? Well, God happens to agree with you. He doesn't like all of that human tradition that religious thinking wants to pour on top of what he truly wants to communicate, which is that he wants a personal relationship with you. Well, you know, usually whenever you give a sermon or something like that, you end with like an inspirational quote or a thought for the day. Turns out Stephen's conclusion was a little bit more robust than that. You stubborn people, he says. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Woo uh stephen is is uh just going directly at him he's not afraid well we're told at that the Jewish leaders were infuriated by stephen's accusation and they shook their fists in rage at him. but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the the place of honor at god 's right hand it's interesting to note that Jesus was standing in this case typically when uh, the Bible depicts Jesus stand, or at God's right hand, he's usually sitting. In this case, he must have been standing to welcome Stephen as he was about to enter um, the place that he prepared for him. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And they put their hands over their ears and began shouting and they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Apparently, um, they took justice into their own hands. The Romans took away this right of capital punishment since the Jews were under the yoke of the Romans. But uh, apparently, they decided they were going to give him some street justice and they killed him in the streets there. It's interesting too that were told his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. This guy shows up later on in the New Testament, in Acts actually. And Stephen's words, as he was standing there, must have stuck into Paul's mind, must have been etched into his memory. We read later on in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, as he was speaking, he admits that I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. And so he realized that he actually played a part. He was one of the witnesses. You know, when you look at this event, it must have made a mark on Paul. He remembered this. Because remember when Stephen said uh, that God cannot dwell in places made by human hands, Paul uses that exact same phrase in Acts chapter 17 as he is speaking to the Areopagus in Athens. And so this must have made a deep impression upon him. Well, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. So there you have the story of Stephen. Stephen. You know, a few points uh, that we should consider in the aftermath. First of all, the church lost Stephen, one of the real bright lights of the early church. This guy was incredibly gifted, incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly persuasive and charismatic. You know, imagine somebody like that in our group here just, just losing their life tragically. I mean, you'd have to wonder, what is God doing? How could he let something like that happen? And yet, God had his replacement standing right there in the crowd. Paul the Apostle, he didn't know it yet. But he would be used by God in incredible ways. And this event would be one of the driving forces behind him sharing the message of Christ really throughout the world. And finally, God sets out the truth about sacred space and ritualism, showing that Jesus ushered in a new way of relating to God. That everything that he laid out in the Old Testament, those were mere symbols. They were shadows. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 of what was to come in Christ. So, a couple conclusions that we can come to from this. First of all, religious ritualism can be a form of idol worship. Some people look to their ritualism. They cling to it even though God has afforded them a new way of relating. And the only thing that I can think for why we would prefer ritualism and religious thinking is because it's more convenient, that it keeps God at bay, that it keeps him at a distance, and that we can actually control whether or not we interact with him and whether or not he interferes in our life. Secondly, you know, you have an opportunity to approach God in spirit and in truth. You know that description that I gave of just relating to someone? God wants to relate to you in a personal way, like a friend. In fact, he calls us his friend. But the real problem between God and humans is that we have done things that have offended him. And before we can have a relationship with him, we need to clear that out. We need to fix that. Luckily, Jesus came to do that. The Bible teaches that Jesus came to die so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled back to God. So if you're here tonight and you're longing to have kind of that close personal relationship with God as opposed to maybe the distant relationship that you feel you have with him, turn to Christ And ask for his forgiveness and God will accept you and you can start a friendship with him tonight. Yeah, we're grateful that you have, um, that we live in a privileged time where we can um, worship you in spirit and in truth. It really bothers me, Lord, that uh, even though I have this privilege that it's easy for me to default back to kind of religious thinking to kind of um, do things for you that are just merely a checklist of things to do instead of really um, doing it because I care about you and I want you know want to be close to you. And so I just pray that uh, you would help root out this uh, religious mindset, this religious thinking that I think poisons the kind of personal relationship you want to have with us, Lord. And uh, finally, I pray for those of us who have never had a personal relationship with you. Pray that they would just turn to you now and uh, forge that and uh, start this friendship that you offer us. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.